But today, we are in uh, Daniel chapter 11. In terms of actually, if this was like a homiletics course, that means like how to give a message course, how to communicate, uh, how, to get, yeah, how to give a sermon based on homiletics. Chapter 11 of Daniel would be the absolute nightmare uh, of that. Uh, because uh, it's a fantastic chapter. Uh, and it really uh, shows us how historically accurate the Bible is. And it is a very important chapter uh, for us, but uh, it, uh, it is so accurate and so specific uh, that it basically is an unfolding of several hundred years of history. Uh, now, I will be teaching a Daniel course in, at MSI, and at that time we will indeed be uh, looking at more of the nuances of the, the historical developments, okay? And if you would like, I could supply you with a very basic historical overview of the whole chapter. Uh, and I was thinking of printing it out, but if I print it out, it would have been like 10 pages in a very, in a very uh, terse way of explaining who was this particular king of the south, and who was this king of the north, and whose wife went up north, and who's... But they're all real people, and it all really happened, but I can send it to you electronically, and the way that, if, if you were interested in it, I, again, any decent commentary, even online public domain commentaries, you can probably find this, but I would be happy to send it to you, but, and the way you would want to receive that is, is you want to send Karen an email. Don't send it to me. For as many of you know, sometimes sending me an email, it's kind of like having, as I've said before, having a front row seat at the luge at the Olympics. You know what I mean by that? Like, it just, bam! And if I don't snag it, it's like into yesterday, you know, and, and so on. So uh, it's not that bad. I'm exaggerating a little bit, a little bit, all right? But uh, it's just uh, more efficient, if you ask Karen. Then Karen will say, okay, I have these emails. Now you just send me the information, and I will send it out. Okay? As uh, you may know, and I will say this, uh, in case you made a call here this week and it didn't get answered, uh, or it didn't get answered uh, quickly, uh, or um, you called in with a prayer request and it didn't get sent out promptly. Uh, that is because Karen was out of town this week, all week. And so I was basically walking around the, the, the entire property this week just saying, Karen, what, what do I do today? Okay, so I just want you to know that. Um, but uh, anyway, she will be back on Monday and all will be well. Okay. All right, so uh, here in Daniel chapter uh, 11, we have, well, I should say it like this. If you remember from, if you remember from last week uh, about how Daniel prayed, right, and how he has his visitation of, of an angel or of angels, uh, and, there's, uh, and it took three weeks to have this visitation. And the angel tells him, and the reason it took three weeks is because this was this battle going on. You know, this invisible war with the angel of Persia. Uh, you know, and then how Michael, 
the archangel had to come and, and, uh, and fight, and, and then finally he was able to get through. And now the angel, he, he tells um, uh, uh, Daniel, this is the message I have, and then i got to go back and fight some more, right? And we talked last week about that concept of that there's more than meets the eye when it comes to warfare in this world. There's more than meets the eye when nations go to war that uh, there is an invisible realm uh, uh, in the heavenlies that uh, we don't understand everything about. You can't take one or two verses and then make universal applications about every single thing that happens. You just can't do that. I mean, people do it, but it's just not right, okay? Uh, However, we do have some ideas about the fact that, for example, in the Brit Hadashah, we saw last week, Right about how our, our uh, battle is not against flesh and blood, but uh, spiritual forces of darkness, and and it does seem that that uh, that the the wars that take place in this world uh, have a spir- have an invisible dimension. It's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. Okay, but there's an invisible dimension. But there's something we didn't say last week, uh, and that is quite clear this week is that in the Bible, when it comes to uh, uh, not, not so much the, what, what uh, we read about in the book of Ephesians and in the Brit Hadashah, but what we read about in Daniel specifically, and about war in Daniel, and holy war in Daniel, is that it always has the Jewish people, or Israel, as the centerpiece of it. For example, we don't read, now you can make the application, although the Bible doesn't necessarily do so. I, you know, if Honduras fights Argentina, you don't have a model exactly in the Bible of what happens when nations that are not uh, connected to Israel in some way go to war. The, the, the models in the Bible uh, have to do, whether directly or indirectly, with the Jewish people. Okay. Now, again, I'm not saying uh, that... Uh, uh, other wars of other nations uh, don't fall into the same category, but I'm saying there's no, you don't have the model here. Okay, uh, even when Yeshua in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, you know, and elsewhere, and, and also in Revelation, in the Apocalypse of John, the Revelation of, of John, Israel is the centerpiece of whatever happens earthly in in this world in terms of wars and so on and that in, and that is the case here i was listening to uh some audio uh, sermons about uh, on on this passage and it's kind of humorous this one particular person was uh he was on the right track and he said how he said how um uh you know people apply the north and the south of of uh, Daniel chapter 11, he said, people apply it to North Korea and South Korea. People applied it, he said, in the 1960s, uh, people applied it to North Vietnam and South Vietnam. I have to say, I am happy to say that I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually do that. But I thought it was interesting that this guy said that. That, yikes, you know, it just goes to show you how you can make the Bible say anything that you wanted to say. You know, uh, when it comes to that kind of thing, you can sort of put your hand in the back part of your Bible 
you know, and you can disguise your voice and make your Bible say anything you want it to say, okay? That's, you know, and that's quite sad, of course. That was a little weird. All right. But anyway, you get the point, see? You won't forget that now. Okay. So uh, it's important that we stick to the text, you know, and that we understand the text. The text is king, uh, and that's so important for us. You know, when I teach the, uh, the, all of the classes in MSI that I teach, mostly all Bible classes, that I, I like to draw, and if you've taken this, the, any of these classes, you see I, I do this from time to time. I draw a picture, a little stick figure of a, of a person uh, here, right? Uh, and then uh, uh, there is uh, a box that says history over here, right? And then another box in the middle that says text. And the reason I do that is not one of us was an eyewitness to anything that took, ever took place in the Bible. Not one of us. And not our fathers or our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers or you keep going back, right? Of course, eventually you get there, but nobody that we know or have access to. And so all we know is what it, the text tells us, okay? And the Bible text is always coming from a point of view, always, there's no such thing as a, just a, a history from every angle, okay? And so we're understanding this history from, you might say, the point of view of the heavenlies, you know, the point of view of uh, God's activity in this world, okay? In everything, frankly, uh, in the Bible. And so when you come to a passage like this, the passage, you can get bogged down tremendously uh, in the 46, 45 verses of chapter 11. But what we see here and what we know from the text, okay, is uh, uh, about this message that Daniel is being given by this angel about the future, still about the future of Israel, the future of the Jewish people. Uh, and, uh, you know, as Daniel had prayed uh, in uh, chapter uh, 9 and in chapter 10. But it applies, frankly, to everything in the Bible that we can't take history and then say, well, I'm going to take this history and I'm going to overlay that over the text. And so I'm going to over understand the text in light of history. No, we're going to understand history in light of the text. That's what keeps the Bible and our faith and our understanding of God from changing as historical developments in life change. But see, God stays the same, and His Word is the same. And what we do is we take the Word and we're able to interpret history through the lens of the text. We don't change the meaning of the Bible as historical trends change, cultural trends change. That is... That's very important, to, uh, uh, that, that always helps us to interpret history well, see? Okay, so you have here in chapter uh, 11, now, uh, uh, an explanation of what's going to happen. Now, God has given Daniel uh, uh, 
in, in broad strokes an explanation of what's going to happen. We saw, for example, in chapter 7, right? You're going to have world kingdom after world kingdom, and ultimately God's kingdom will trump them all, and, uh, and God will rule, right? And the Son of Man will come in the clouds, and we, we saw how Yeshua... I uh, uh, identified himself with that son of man, and his and the the kingdom of David uh, is indeed the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Messiah. We, we talked about that. Then in Daniel chapter eight, we saw how there was some more information given about the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. Okay. Then in chapter nine, Daniel prays the seventy years of of captivity are almost over, and he confesses the sins of the people. And then Gabriel visits him and, and very, very importantly tells him, Daniel, the end of the captivity is coming, but it is not the end of the captivity with a capital C. It is not the end of the end. And so, Daniel, that although history is going to unfold, the immediate history, the end of the 70 years, is going to point forward to events that will take place in the far distant future. And that's kind of the paradigm for us to understand here that Daniel is getting this understanding of history that the history in the immediate future points to history in the distant future, Daniel. The history that you're going to get, the, the, forth, the foretelling of prophetic events, Daniel, from your point of view, are actually a, a type or a scene of events in the far distant future. Now, how do we know that that's actually what's being said? We know it because Yeshua himself tells us that. We know it because if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, see verse 27, we said this before, but we need to, in order to really understand this very important chapter 11, we need to go back to chapter 9. Okay, so in verse 27, now you can listen to the whole message on, of Daniel 9 from verses 24 to 27. But in Daniel, just to refresh us here, in Daniel 9, 27, it says, He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination uh, will come one who makes desolate. Okay? And then it says, Even upon a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out and on the one who makes desolate. So, the point uh, uh, there is, is that that is speaking about something in the distant future, okay? Uh, this uh, abomination, the one who makes desolate. And if you go back to verse 24, uh, the initial answer to Daniel's prayer about the 70 years ending, the initial answer is, Daniel, 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So it's not just about the end of 70 years of captivity in Babylon. But Daniel, I'm going to tell you that the end of the 70 years of captivity in Babylon are part of a chain of events leading to the consummation of everything. They're not like, uh, isolated, they're part of a chain of events leading to uh, the end times, as we like to say, or the, the consummation, or the eschatological uh, end time events. 
that passage informs us and helps us to understand, therefore, that all of history, we could say certainly as it relates to Israel, but perhaps we could say all of history as an application, is unfolding in a particular direction. We don't know times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, as the Bible says, okay? No author has figured it out right, okay? Because as you know, people have written books that we, we should be like uh, at the end now. It's November, you know, Rosh Hashanah has passed, uh, the blood moons are done, the Shemitah year is finished, we're, and we're still dealing with ISIS, and we're still in the midst of immorality and ethical debauchery in our world like we were a year ago, and five years ago, and 20 years ago, and 100 years ago, and 500 years ago, okay? Uh, and so, but, but what we know is history is moving. We don't know the, where the finish line exactly is, but history is moving in a particular direction. And from the text of the Bible, we learn that God is moving history in a particular direction. Let's see. So that is part of what he's explaining to Daniel in chapter 9. That the end of the 70 years is part of this longer period of time that ends with the end of sin and everlasting righteousness. Okay? So then we come to chapter 10 where he prays again. And then, like I said, the angel comes and, and tells him uh, why it took so long. And then says, now I'm going to tell you uh, this word uh, of the truth. Now in chapter 11, he tells him. Now, so it says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you, okay, uh, the truth. Beginning in verse 2 is really where this begins. It really shouldn't be at the beginning of, of a chapter here. It's just a, a, a continuation. And now I will tell you the truth. That's a great statement, right? I will tell you the truth. Not I will tell you how I feel about the truth or tell you what I think the truth might be. Okay? It's counterintuitive to our postmodern world. I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Okay? From the point of view of Daniel, this happened. Xerxes becomes a great king. We actually know who he is, right? From a Jewish holiday, from Purim, right? We like to say in our English uh, way of saying it, Ahasuerus, right? Or we say in, in Hebrew, uh, Ahasuerus, right? Uh, and we know all about him, right? And then it says in verse 3, really more importantly, in verse 3, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Okay? But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Okay. Now, 
This is a little bit of an elaboration of what we read about in chapter 8. And this king is Alexander the Great. And we know about his great conquerings. And we know that when he died, he had no heirs, just like the text says. And uh, uh, the empire of Alexander was divided up. Now, it was divided up into four parts. However, in this chapter, what we keep reading about are the kings of the north and the kings of the south. The kings of the north and the kings of the south, full of intrigue and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, complicated history as it unfolds. The reason that we read about the kings of the north and the kings of the south is because those were the primary empires post-Alexander that affected the Jewish people, that affected Daniel's people. Okay? So the names of these empires... Uh, or the names of the kings of these empires, you may have heard of uh, in biblical history classes or in messages or holidays or history, just taking history, you have the kings of the south were called the Ptolemies, started with a P, okay? The Ptolemies. And they basically uh, became like the, you know, the pharaohs, the, uh, the leaders of Egypt, okay? And then you had in the north, they were called Seleucids, and they basically uh, ruled Syria in Damascus, you know, Syria, country of Syria. Now, see, we're not now talking about Assyria, like we often do, you know, about in, in Bible history, but no, the country of Syria, right where it is today, all right? And so, two branches of these four branches that Alexander's empire became the Ptolemies in the south, the Seleucids, the Seleucids in the north. And, and you had what we like to call the land between, right? Uh, Judea was the land between, right? And so the kings of the south constantly were in some type of battle for power with the kings of the north, and the kings of the north with the kings of the south. And sometimes... The kings of the north would go into Asia Minor, and sometimes then the kings of the south would, would come up and, and fight them, and you had them going back and forth, and you had uh, you know, women related to the kings of the south uh, uh, getting involved with kings of the north, and, and it's all there. Uh, and if, if I uh, made the decision to actually explain this history uh, uh, in, in, a, in a message... As we say in the old country, forget about it, okay? You would not remember it. So you can read it in, uh, you can read it in Josephus. You can read a good portion of it in First and Second Maccabees. And also many, 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 many Bible commentaries. But suffice to say for us that beginning in verse 5 through verse 19, uh, we, we have this history from... Basically, uh, the, the time of the end of Alexander the Great, uh, all the way till about 167 B.C. or B.C.E. Okay? Uh, and it is amazing how accurate this history is. Uh, uh, all of the different uh, uh, Ptolemies, all the different Seleucid leaders, Antiochus I, II, and III, 
and, you know, uh, and uh, uh, their rises to power, their declines from power, and uh, what, what happened. It, it is amazingly accurate. But when we come to verse 20, we come to uh, a very famous person uh, in history, okay, who was a Seleucid leader, and you know him, you know him, right? Uh, uh, he is uh, the uh, well-known figure from another Jewish holiday, right? Uh, Antiochus, right? Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, uh, Epiphanes. He's the one from the Hanukkah story, right? Uh, and actually, uh, if we were going to get technical, he was not a Syrian leader. We should refer to him as a Greco-Syrian leader. Uh, and uh, he plays this very interesting particular role uh, in history. So beginning in verse 20, we read, Then in his place, from Antiochus III, okay, in his place will arise one who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in angel, in anger, or in battle. And in his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship uh, has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him, and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small uh, force of people. Okay? Now, this is talking about how he gained power. And in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take uh, a minute, and I'm just going to read a little portion about this history. Okay, just a, a little portion of it. Okay, all right. So beginning in verse 21, this is sort of like a little bit of a running commentary on this. Antiochus IV is introduced as a contemptible person. He took to himself the name Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one, but he was considered uh, so untrustworthy that, his, that he had, actually had another nickname, uh, Epimenes, which means the, the mad the madman, the man person, mad person. Okay. The throne rightly belonged to Demetrius Soter, a son of Seleucus IV. But Antiochus IV seized the throne, see, as the text says, and had himself proclaimed king. He did not come to the throne by rightful succession, but he seized it through intrigue, as the text says. He was accepted as ruler because he was able to turn aside an invading army, perhaps the Egyptians. Uh, and he deposed Onias III, the high priest, called in the text, the Prince of the Covenant. Okay? Then in verses 23 and 24, after his military victories, Antiochus Epiphanes, prestige and power rose with the help of a comparatively small number of people. He evidently sought to bring uh, peace to his realm by redistributing wealth, taking from the rich and giving it to his followers. In verses 25 to 27, after Antiochus consolidated his kingdom, he moved against Egypt, the king of the south. In 170, he was able to move his army from his homeland to the very borders of Egypt before he was met by the Egyptian army at uh, Pelusium near the Nile Delta. In this battle, 
the Egyptians had a large army, but were defeated, and Antiochus professed friendship with Egypt. Okay? Now, we could go on and on, but you can see there's, there's, uh, um, there's, there's a lot of history uh, in this text, uh, and it, uh, it is quite accurate. It's amazingly accurate when you take the time to read through uh, this, uh, this history. But at one particular point, uh, in verse uh, 29, it says, At the appointed time he will return and come into the south. But this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships from Kittim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up abomination of desolation okay and by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant but the people who know their god will display strength and take action and those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. So these verses here talk about the famous story uh, that is also mentioned in the 8th chapter of, uh, of Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, his, the desecration of the temple. And it even speaks of those who follow him because uh, there were uh, Jews who embraced Hellenism. And then it talks about a small group who did not, who were loyal to God. You know, at that particular time, the uh, Maccabees and the Maccabean Revolt uh, you know, and, uh, and all of that. And so it is very interesting here that this history is given up to uh, this uh, Seleucid ruler and about uh, his desecration uh, of the temple. Now, beginning in verse 36, we see now, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Uh, yeah, of every God, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots with horsemen, with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. 
He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things in Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and between the holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And so what happens here, just like in chapter 9, Daniel wants to know about the end of the captivity. Then he's given this whole big brush, this uh, span of, uh, of history uh, to the end. Now, here what we have is something very similar to that, but with more detail. Okay, He's given the detail all the way from the end of the captivity of, of the leaders of Egypt and the leaders of Syria, basically, all the way until about 165. Okay? Till Antiochus and, and how that works itself out. Okay? Then it begins to talk about this leader in ways that Antiochus never uh, actually uh, had victory or had such power and, and so on. And it's, it's sort of a, uh, just like we read about the 70 weeks, you know, becoming 77s. We see that this history moves forward to the end of time, Okay. And at the end time, in verse, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And so, uh, what Daniel is given is the span of history, not just for the purpose of being able to say, wow, that's great, you know? It's great to know. Good to know, angel, you know? Uh, but it, it's to give him and the people who lived in the second century, for sure, and the people uh, uh, certainly who live uh, today, great comfort to know that God has history in the palm of his hand. That is the point of this understanding. We don't have every bit of understanding uh, of, this, uh, of this passage, but we do know that at the end, there will be one who will rise up. We see it here. We see it in other passages. This people of the prince who is to come, who will destroy the city, destroy the sanctuary. Uh, we recognize um, that there will be this one who's later on called a beast, right? Uh, who will indeed make a covenant with the Jewish people, uh, but then will turn on them. It will seem like all is lost. And then the Son of Man will come in the clouds and uh, this uh, kingdom of God will become manifest in, in this world. Uh, and so the, the point is here is when you read passages like in verse 35, and some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. The appointed time. Just like we read about the appointed times in Leviticus, 
you know, God's appointed times, the uh, times when God says, I'm going to meet with man. These are appointed times, appointed times of judgment for Israel, the nations, the world, okay? A time of refinement. And we see that the history leading up to this, and most specifically, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes serves as like this biblical type of what will be at the end. And he becomes, all of this history is indeed a link in the chain, bringing us to this grand ultimate conclusion, which we have not yet reached. After the time of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, after this time, but that's not written about uh, uh, here, became a period of time of great, um, uh, um, in one sense, tranquility, and in another sense, um, ethical and moral upheaval uh, in the Jewish world. Uh, To the point where you read in the history of this day where it was hard to tell who was who, and it was hard to tell who was married to who. It was hard to tell who was the priest, who was the leader, who was a good leader, who was a bad leader. We read about on Purim, for uh, for example, on Sukkot, for example, that uh, the high priest being pelted with etrogs because people hated him so much. The Jewish people hated him so much. It was a time of great debauchery. It was, it was not a, um, uh, a happy time in, or an ethical or moral time or an obedient time in the Jewish world. And this was the world in which Yeshua uh, entered. And Yeshua himself makes a point of saying that these events that take place in the book of Daniel have not yet come to pass. That is so um, powerfully important for us. When people say, well, these events in Daniel have come to pass. Yeshua didn't say that. Yeshua didn't think so. And he lived in the very late Second Temple period, right? Uh, That we like to call the first century, right? So in the first century... He's saying the way this has not yet come to pass. And he's saying, look for it. And then we know that he died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, where he uh, is uh, to this day. The Spirit of God has been poured out, and we're waiting. We're waiting for that to end. But the history continues. The history of Israel continues. See, this is so fascinating because oftentimes when you read like histories, uh, biblical histories, it's almost as if you get the idea that Jewish history ends at the end of, at, in 70 AD. And all that's left is Christian history and world, just some kind of world history. The church history. That's what we call it. Church history, like, is, that's it. But Jewish history continued. Messian, which we could also call Messianic history continued to this very day. There's a whole history of what happened to the Jewish people in the land and in Babylon and the wanderings of our people for 2,000 years, and the miracle that without a language, without a common language and a common land, that uh, our people were able to maintain a personal identity all that time without assimilating. And that's because of the, uh, mostly because of, well, of course, the uh, oversight of God, but also the, uh, the rabbinic literature that everyone became tied to no matter where they lived. It's very interesting. Uh, even though in unbelief, in unbelief, God in his great mercy has kept his hand on the Jewish people all the way to the place of returning as a people to the promised land, uh, to Eretz Yisrael, 
to this very day. And so when we look at history today, I mean, you know, uh, the Middle East is where everything seems to be taking place, in a sense, or being exported from to other parts of the world or to. And so it is very important to understand that when we look at our world today, let us not simply look at it horizontally. Because if the people in, in, uh, in these days looked at it simply horizontally, in other words, without God, it would be a lost cause. But the point of this is to say, God is in control. God has, has his hand on the affairs of history. So then we might say, well then, do we just you know, pull the covers over our heads and wait for the end to come and to say forget about it? No, because we read passages like, uh, here, you can make the application of Philippians chapter 2, where we read, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now uh, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. God is at work, but we're at work. He's created us for good works. He has called us. We are responsible for everything we do, but God is overseeing all of history. Can we understand that completely? Absolutely not. Okay? And when we don't have to, but we're called to trust in, in God, in what we don't see. In Romans chapter 8, you're familiar with this passage, but when you read the whole thing, it's quite powerful. You read here um, in uh, Romans chapter 8 in the New Covenant. What shall we, in verse, 30, uh, uh, verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also, uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Messiah Yeshua is he who died, yet rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also interceded from us, uh, for us. Who shall separate us from the, law of, from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. And then it's quite interesting by the way. He then says I'm telling you the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is really true, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Messiah Yeshua, 
for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then he goes on to talk about this calling of Israel. That nothing is nothing changes the plan of God. No historical event, no uh, empire, no Caesar, no uh, world power, uh, you know, no uh, in our own world, no terrorist uh, organizations or acts or people. Do not be dismayed. God has His hand on this history. Do we understand it? No. But we need to remember that it's greater than us. It's greater than what happens to me, and it's greater than what happens to you. God is at work in a far greater way in this world. And that God's desire is not just about what happens if I'm comfortable or what happens to me, but it's how he is moving history forward. And the greatest paradigm of all is Yeshua himself. Because Yeshua had a difficult life. And he died, right? And he rose from the dead. And so the fact is there you have the Messiah coming at a time in history when the world is in a bad place. And he came into this world at a bad place, in a bad way, right? And uh, uh, forces of darkness, uh, foreign nations and his own people turn on him and execute him. How could that be the will of God? How could God let something like that happen? Because this, unbeknownst to us at that time, or having a clear understanding of it, this was the way atonement would come. Not in the way perhaps we would expect, but this is the way it indeed uh, 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 came. Uh, and I actually won't, well, I'll just read this two verses and then we're done. Where, where Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man God delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. And put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so he becomes the paradigm that Yeshua's suffering was for the ages. God's concern, Yeshua's concern, was the salvation of this whole world. Not just whether he would feel well or he would die or be accepted. And so in the same way, we see very bad things happen to people. And we might say, how could this be the will of God? I don't know, and neither do any of, none of us know. What we know is, again, just like in the life of Yeshua, God is moving history forward. Why did many atrocities take place in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes? Why did many atrocities take place in, in the capture of the temple and the destruction of the temple? Why, why did so many atrocities take place in the Holocaust? Why do uh, terrible things take place all over the world by the hands of evil people? Why does it continue to happen? I don't know. But what I do know is God is moving history forward. It's not random. It's not a lost cause. And what God has called us to do is what he's called Daniel to do. Continue to pray. 
continue to intercede, continue to share this message. And that's exactly what uh, Yeshua told his disciples to do. Nobody knows the times and the epics except the Father, who uh, it's fixed by his own authority. But then he said, go, go and make disciples, right? And that's what we're called to do as we move through the ebbs and flows of this world by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to be encouraged, to move forward. Uh, and whether it's in our lifetime or not in our lifetime, yes, the Messiah is indeed coming and he will sit on his throne in Yerushalayim. And that's what Daniel 11 is designed to help us understand. But the best is yet to come in chapter 12 when, when uh, we come to the punchline. But we'll save that for another time. All right. Lord, thank you, God, for um, uh, this great word that in the midst of all of these pagan rulers, you have your hand in the midst of it, that nothing is out of your control. And so, Lord, let us not be discouraged, but let us continue to move forward. Let us continue to uh, believe what we don't see and continue to trust in you, Lord, and uh, continue to make disciples and look forward indeed to that day. May we continue to work out our salvation as you are at work in this world, Lord, and we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.